Okay, I think we'll start. First of all, it's always uh, encouraging to see this kind of enthusiasm for Talmud Torah. So uh, thanks for uh, that encouragement. Okay, we're going to look at uh, important parak in Dvarim Yudchet. There are several places in Chumash where we're warned about Canaanite practices. And Dvarim Yudchet outlines a particular kind of problematic practice, a series of them in fact, but also provides, as it were, an antidote or a counterpoint to those practices. So we'll look at what's problematic about those practices and how do we understand this contrast to the counterpoint to the antidote. So let's look at the psukim first. Okay, so this you have on your source sheet. So we're in Dvarim Yilchet. Ki don't learn to emulate the abominations of those non-Jews, of those Canaanite nations. What are these toeva practices? Now, with your permission, I'm not going to try to explain the differences between all these magical practices. That would probably take the whole year. We won't get to the rest of this year. So let's uh, leave them uh, ambiguous for now. A couple of them we'll look into in greater depth. Okay, so although one of them is a bit different, certainly the issue of uh, child sacrifice seems different than other kinds of magical incantations, right? The soothsayer and the necromancer, but let's leave that aside. Okay, here we seem to have a common denominator of those interested in contacting the dead. Okay, usually the dead, the deceased, would be some source of information, like maybe from their perspective in a different world, they could provide privileged information. So that might be a common denominator there. And then the puzzle continues. Right, that be, these are abominations, and that's precisely why the Canaanite nations will lose the land, because they'd engage in these practices. Okay, now we get to the contrast. Tamim Rather be tamim. So we're going to have to figure out what is tamimut. What are we being asked to do here instead of going to the menachesh and the monein? And if we think about it, even in modern Hebrew, right, the word tamim could have different implications. Okay, we might translate as we say, someone's a tamim, that they're innocent, right, as Avimelech says, right, betom luvaviv and akion kapaya sitis out, right, maybe their innocence would be the best translation. So maybe be innocent with God. We'll see what that innocence might be. Or it could be as when an animal is a set tamim, a zachar tamim, you wouldn't say it's innocent in that context. You would say it is whole. It is complete. It is not blemished. So tamim could also have to do with wholeness. Be wholehearted with God. Okay, so let's leave that as a question. Are we being told here to be innocent with God? Are we being told here to be wholehearted with God? And how does that contrast with the monain and the menachesh and the like? Okay, now the, this antidote, as I call it, this counterpoint is not only manifest in this uh, command to be tamim, but is also manifest as we continue. Let's go to Pasuk Tedvav. Navi I will bring up a prophet from your midst and you will listen to him. Now, what seems to be the clear implication here? Well, you don't have to go to the Monain or the Kosein or the Doresh El Hametim. Why don't you have to go to those people? Because you have a different address, right? Your address is the address of the Navi. The prophet could somehow be a substitute, be the counterpoint to the Monain and the like. Now, here I think we have to ask another question. How is a Navi, how is a Navi a counterpoint to all of the above? And here, I guess the way I'll say the question, is a Navi, does a Navi have the same job description as all of the above? He's just better at it or more appropriate somehow, right? You would go to the Navi for the same reason. You might go to the necromancer or the soothsayer or the seance person, the tarot card reader, Right, you'd go to the Navi to find out something, and just the Navi's better at it, so don't go to the tarot card reader, go to the Navi. Or are we being told it's not a quantitative distinction, but rather it's a qualitative distinction. Right, go to the Navi, because the Navi has a totally different job description than the Kosein. That's the contrast. So our main two questions for today are what is being demanded in Tmimut? What is this innocence or wholeheartedness? And how is that a response to these things, these practices? And secondly, how is the Navi a counterpoint to all of the above? Okay, so let's get, let's get down to business. Let us start with Tamimut. What does it mean to be Tamim? 
So let's go to Rashi. You have this on your source sheet. Okay, the uh, the third source. We'll try to figure out what Tamimut means. So it says Rashi, Tamim tiyeh im Hashem alokecha, hit aleich imo b'tamimut, walk with innocence, v'titzapelo, look to God. Now look what it says now, v'lo tachkor achar hatidot. Don't try to investigate the future. Ela kol ma shiavolacha, but whatever happens, kabel b'tamimut. How are you? So I would say in Rashi, a better translation for tamim would not be wholehearted, be innocent. Like innocence means you don't need to know everything. There's an innocence with God. How are you? Mani- how do you manifest your innocence with God? You don't need to know what is happening in the future. So according to this, what is the tamimut contrast between the monain? But doesn't tamim also mean simple? So I would say that fits this translation. There's a simplicity. But I, I admit, we could use the term in a negative, sometimes it's pejorative. Someone's a tamim and doesn't understand you know, the subtleties or the difficulties of human existence. But, you know, we shouldn't be that cynical that tamim has to be negative, right? There's a simplicity that can be positive also, right? Not needing to try to access information about the future, that could be innocence and simplicity, right? One can make do without that kind of information. So I think it fits with the translation of simplicity, Okay. So according to Rashi, we have a pretty sharp contrast, right? The monain, the menachesh, are means of trying to find out about the future. And to be a tamim means to not have that need, to not need to find out about the future. Of course, there's one question we'll have to return to, which is what's the obvious question now? If tamim means you don't have to be tachkor acharatidot, so what's the navi about? Right, so then there's a funny pasuk. Be tamim, oh, go to, next pasuk, Go to the Navi, isn't that precisely a lack of Tmimut based on our current description of what it means to be Tamim? So we will return to that shortly. Okay, now another possibility, of course, is to say that it's not what the word Tamim means at all. Let us go to the Chizkuni, the fourth source there. And it's going to become clear that the Chizkuni is working with a different definition of what Tamim means. Says the Chizkuni, Tamim tiyem Hashem elokecha, lashon shleimut. Ready, notice? Tamim more like set tamim, zachar tamim, not innocence, not simplicity as you would have it, but rather whole, wholeheartedness. Be shalem. How do you do this? Al tamar imo. Don't combine divine worship with some kind of subservience to another force as well, as we've seen in various historical examples. Kumoshim etzinu why we have that phenomena, right, where the Shomronim, right, where there's both worship of God that is integrated with some kind of subservience to other forces. Don't do that, but rather be wholehearted with God. So the Chizkuni has a totally different description. How does Tamim Tia work? Well, one of the problems of going to a Monain or a Kosein is that you end up believing in other forces. There are other forces in the universe you're trying to click into, you're trying to connect to, you're trying to manipulate, and arguably that would take us away from connecting. Tashem, just to do an analogy, it's, it's really not my topic, but you know, I, I can never resist a good tangent. Okay, there, there's a, a famous Rambam where the Rambam thinks like you can't pray to angels, which is quite interesting because we, you know, in our liturgy we do it, right? In Tzlicho uh, we say, Rachamim. So we are addressing angels. So what's the debate about? So those that do do it, they say, why is this detracting from our monotheistic belief? We view the angels as beings working under the Ribbono Shalom. So when I contact them, I'm just contacting the God's governor, as it were. And therefore, it doesn't detract from my allegiance to God. Where the Rambam thinks the second you're addressing an entreaty to any other entity, that already detracts from the purity of your monotheism. Right? So here, I think you can have an analogy here. What would the Chizkuni say? Whatever position one takes about the truth of magic, I mean, even if one thinks these forces do exist or that one thinks they don't exist, if I try to access them, then my sole address is not God anymore. There are other addresses, there are other forces that I'm trying to confront and manipulate, as it were. Or maybe manipulate is a strong word, or use. So now, says the Chizkuni, be wholehearted with God. Now notice, according to the Chizkuni, we would not have the question we asked on Rashi. But again, notice the split here. Rashi says, be innocent. Very explicitly, lo tachkar acharatidot. There's no need to try to find out what's going to happen in the future. And then we have the question, what is the role of the Navi? Whereas if you hold like the chizkuni, tamim be wholehearted with God. 
Hashem is the only address, and all these other things are not an appropriate address. And at that point, it's not a problem to say we go to the Navi as the voice piece, right, the, the mouthpiece of Hashem. Okay, wonderful. Let us push things a bit further. Now, let's try to figure out what these, some of these things are, at least. What is a monein and a menachesh? And here I have to thank you. Since when I prepared this year, I discovered something I did not know. Now, I was teaching menachesh earlier this year, and one of my students said, is menachesh related to the word nachash? Like, maybe snakes are somehow involved in, uh, in sorcery. So I had no idea if she was right or not. So I said, I actually have no idea. But uh, we'll see now the Ramban does not think so. Okay, we'll see where the word comes from. Now, let's do a little uh, etymology. Okay, where does the word monein come from? Where's the, actually, maybe I'll, maybe I'll throw it to you. Anyone make a suggestion? Where's the word Mo'onain come from? What, what word does it sound like? Okay, very good. So one possibility is Anan. Okay, we'll see in a second that that's uh, good. Anyone with another possibility? Any other word you might want to relate it to besides Anan? What? Yeah, but that's with an Aleph. So otherwise, it'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else? Another suggestion? What, what a word? Okay, so we'll see in a second a couple other possibilities. Okay, how about Menachesh? I want to take a stand on that, assuming my student is wrong and it's not related to snakes. Okay, I guess, well, why? Yeah. Okay, but that's true. But that, I think, is kind of maybe going etymologically backwards. I mean, the reason why Nachash means to guess might be because Menachesh and Chumash is about this sorceress practice about the future. But then somebody that begs the question, is there... What? No, you're all right. But maybe... Okay, let's see. Let us see here. Okay, well, let us see what happens here. Okay, let's go to the Gemara and Sanhedrin. Okay, we're back to the second source. Why does the word Monain mean what it means? Tana Rabbanan, Monain. You put some kind of substance on your eye to get privileged sight or privileged information. Monain is someone who does sleight of hand. Like literally you seize the eyes. It's like you close your audience's eyes so they can't really see what you're doing. Now without getting to the debate what exactly Monain is, just we'll stick with language for a second. Based on the first two approaches, Monain is related to the word ayin. Maybe it's with the eyes, right? A vision or lack of vision. Maybe that's where the word monain comes from. Okay, let's keep going. Rabbi Kibomer, Zamachashev itim v'sha'ot. Actually, monain is the one who calculates the times. Omer hayom yafelatzeit, right? That's classic magic, right? What do you do? You know the most auspicious time to embark on some endeavor. Now, it's very interesting what's going on language-wise here. Okay, as I get older, I find language more and more interesting. I hope that's not a bad sign. Okay, where, where's the source of the word here? Ona, ona as in a, a time, right? So now we have an interesting like, three-way debate. Are we relating it to the word ayin? Are we relating it to the word ona? Or relating it, as was suggested before, to anan? This is quite interesting. That's the language part, but be it as it may, it has to do with somehow some kind of knowledge of success, when to do something. Okay, when to do something. Okay, now let's go with that background. Let us go to the Ramban. Okay, so we're now on the fifth source. The Ramban is going to try to figure out where Menachesh and Monain come from. So if we skip to the fourth line. The Iskir Bifrat, I'm the fourth line of Ramban, Monain. Again, I guess magical off and as was suggested correctly. Reading the clouds. I guess cloud patterns are a good way to try to get these kind of uh, privileged pieces of information. So that's where it comes from. And let's keep going. You somehow could get information from the birds. Which is quite fascinating. I always say that Pasuk means, you know, like the birds carry your secret. But it apparently means, no, no, if you listen to them carefully, they tell you where to invest your money. Right, that is uh, what's going on here. Where does it come from? Kodem. It's quite interesting. Again, I, I don't know if there are other etymological possibilities here, but he said, claims the nun is not part of the root. It's like the ita achishena, right? It's to be done quickly, to get quick access to information. So we have the etymology of monain. We have the source of menachesh, according to Ramban. The common denominator, though, again, is that you can get access to information quickly. Wouldn't we all not like to know? We'd all like to know where to invest our money. What's going to take off in the last five years? So monain and menachesh are means of getting that information. Okay, now the Ramban is going to make a dramatic, dramatic move. Okay, let us look at the last three lines in the middle of the line. Amar HaKatuf. Says the Ramban, Amar HaKatuf kitovat Hashem kol ose'ele, v'lo amar ose kol ele. Now we get to close reading, where close reading really matters. What's the difference? 
If it says what it does say, kol osa'ela, what's all modifying? Everybody who does it. If I say osa'ela, then the kol is describing all the actions. But wait, the Ramban is saying something amazing now. If it doesn't say osa'ela, rather it says kol osa'ela, maybe not all of the things on the list are actually abominable. Right? I never would have read the Pasuk that way, but the Ramban says, read it carefully. Kol osa'ela. It doesn't matter who you are. If you do certain things, that's toeva. But it doesn't say ose kol ela. Maybe it's just some of the things on the list. But what's even more remarkable, look at the Ramban's rationale. Why is that? Ki akatuv yedebel rubam. Ki hamonein vamenachesh eina toeva. Those two things we just described, there's nothing like immoral inherently about that. Your reaction to them should not be, that's disgusting that a human being would do that. Right? You hear about someone practicing child sacrifice, then you say that is a toeva. Right? Mavir Benoveish is toeva. But there is nothing toeva about Ma'onein Umanachesh. Why? Amazing. Isn't that fascinating? Now, I have to admit, I am often unsympathetic to people who go to tarot card readers. I kind of like to, I guess I'll use a strong word, to ridicule them. But the Ramban would say I'm being a little bit unfair. Very interesting. What the Ramban claims psychologically, it is just a natural human desire to try to access that kind of information. Now, I guess one could make fun of them anyway by saying that's a natural desire, but you're barking up the wrong tree. But, but, but at the same time, the Ramban seems to think once it's such a basic human desire, it's not really fair to call it a... That's just the nature of humanity. We, we're concerned. We don't know how things will play out. We'd like to know what's going to happen in the future. So when we try to do such things, you can't be compared to like Mavir Benobi Tobaish. Right? That's Toiva. This is not Toiva. I'm just curious about one thing I just noticed now. It's always good to teach things again. He does say, Akatuvia Debel Rubam. So Ramban does seem committed to saying that at least the majority of the things on the list are Toiva. I'm open to suggestions. Like it's not. I, I keep going with the obvious one, right? Obviously, child sacrifice is an easy one to go with. It's not clear at this point, like, what else goes on the list now? Is Oven Yidoni on the list? I'm not sure. He, the only thing he explicitly excluded were Warma Onein and Menachesh. Okay, but, but again, just to get back to what we said in the beginning, though, it seems to me the Ramban is a powerful contrast to Rashi. Again, what was Rashi's shot in Tamim Tia? There's actually a divine directive. Be innocent. Lo Takar. Akar, atidot. What does Ramban tell me here? It's not such a terrible thing. Okay, in a given context, I admit it's usur. I'm not saying it's okay. It is asur to go to the ma'onein. But he doesn't view it. We shouldn't react to it like, you know, murder or child sacrifice. It is not that kind of endeavor. It's a natural human desire. It's not a to'eva at all. Now, not so surprisingly, the Ramban is going to interpret tamim very differently than Rashi. Let's go to the next Ramban. As you can see, uh, my style deviates from the standard Mechon uh, Herzog here. We have a lot of Rishonim here. Okay, so that's what we got here in uh, the Ramban. Okay, we should direct our heart singularly to God. Look at this amazing line. I think you cannot get a more powerful expression of the fact that, according to Ramban, uh, excuse me for saying so, the Navi does have the same job description as the Monet. What does he say? What is going to the Navi about? What is Tamim T about? Well, if you want to find out about the future, I'll tell you the correct address for doing so. The correct address for doing so is the Navi. He says it very clearly. Go to him. That's Tamim T. Uh, again, sharp contrast to Rashi. Not Lotachkar Achartidot, but go to God when you want to be Choker. That's who you should go to. Why? There are different ways of accessing. Again, usually we can't talk to God directly. So you do it through a prophet. You do it through the Urmvetumim. Don't go to the stargazers. Why not? There it is. What's one good reason to go to the Navi over the Hovre Shemaim? What's a good reason? Yeah, the, the Navi has a better batting average. Like, when you open the newspaper and read, like, the prophetic prediction statistics, right, the Hovri Shemayim, I don't know, we'll see what they, I don't know, what they, we'll make up a batting average. They say they bat 500. Right, why not? If you predict things, you might as well get uh, half right and half wrong. In fact, I'll tell you a, a funny thing. that You can all look it up in the library afterward. See, I didn't make it up. 
There's a sefer by a fellow named from Matasdorf on Mesechet Sota called Divrei David. In the Hakdama to Divrei David, it's really remarkable. He has a critique of uh, contemporary miracle workers. So he explains, if you want to become a Baal Mofet, he explains how to do so. Right? He has a guide there. Okay, how do you advertise yourself as a Baal Mofet? He says, first, come out with a uh, with an attack on a television or the internet. Like, do that first. Okay, And then, start making predictions. It'll be okay, because half that you get right, people will be amazed at your powers, and they'll forget about the half you get wrong. Just go for it. Okay, so if you, you can go look it up. The, the Divrei David on Sota has this guide for uh, becoming a Baal Mofet. But in, in any case, the Hovei Shemaim gets some things right, gets some things wrong. And the Navi gets it all right. So therefore, go to the Navi. So I think we're getting one common theme throughout these Rambans, right? The Ramban is very adamant that the Navi has a similar job to the Kosem, right? You're trying to Menachesh, I should say. You're trying to find out about the future. But you should do it to Hashem. You should be, <clears throat> as the Chizkuni would say, be wholehearted with God. It is God only and not something else. And... And the Navi will be better, right? He'll be better at accessing the information that you need. Okay, any comments or questions still now? Yeah, please. Do you think there's a much more um, basic difference between Okay, excellent. Okay, so Donna made a great point now, which we will see. Uh, it's basically anticipating an itziv. We'll get to that shortly. Okay? Now, to be fair, you know, I'm being a little bit un- unfair to Ramban now, because what, what do teachers like to do? You always have the approach you don't like, which is the foil, right? You do that first. Say, ah, but now let's move on to uh, the approach we really like. So, but uh, I guess it's ju- justified sometimes. So we're going to see in one second, we're going to move away from the Ramban to another approach to this whole issue. Okay? Before we do that, though, just one more source kind of along the lines of Ramban. If we could turn the page... To the second sheet. I think the Abarbanel is thinking very much in Ramban terms. Okay, see what we have here in the Abarbanel. Okay, it's just going to be a different interpretation of the meaning of Tamim, but I think we're still in the same basic worldview of Ramban. Let us see what Abarbanel says. Vim Tomer, Anigam Imkein Chaser, Ela. The Abarbanel says something very interesting. Hashem's nervous. When you tell Am Yisrael they can't go to the Monein and Menachesh, well, if you grew up in your culture, what's your obvious response to that? Yeah, that's, it's, and, not that, I will be at an unfair disadvantage. Here, I am inheriting, I am choosing where to invest my money, and so are the Kanani and the Prezi. But the Kanani and the Prezi have this information about, they have the insider trading information, and I don't. That's not very fair, so I'm going to be lacking. So, you won't know this, and they'll have access to it. What's Tamim here? Not wholehearted with God. You'll be complete in the sense that you'll still have it all. Like, don't worry. Things will work out for you economically and politically even though you don't have this kind of source of information. He's quite clear. He says in the second to last line, Hatzlachot hamidumot. You're nervous that you'll lose battles. You're nervous that your crops will die. Just keep mitzvot, and that will be the way to achieve that without having to go to the Hovrei Shemaim. So just to sum up approach one here, now we're going to move on to approach two. This approach, I would say, is really, it's mostly a quantitative distinction. right? You do go to the Navi for similar reasons as you would go to the Monein and Menachesh. And... Tamim Tia means do it with God alone, not with somebody else. The Navi is better at it, or as the Barbanel would have it, right? The Navi is someone who, sorry, go, through God you can get all those successes. Don't think you'll be chaser, you'll be Tamim. Okay, before we move on to the second approach, yeah, please. Okay, good. So I think, yeah, I see it. everyone here is not on the Ramban side. You know, I shouldn't say everyone, we've had a vote of exactly two people so far. But, uh, let us see, we will now go on to other approaches in one second and contrast it with, with Ramban. Yeah. So with the Abarbanel, Tamim's here is not a before, you shall be. It's more like, don't worry. Correct, correct, very good. Excellent point. You're, you're right, I wasn't thinking of that, but there are various psukim in the We have a debate, are they a tzivoy or a havtacha? But you get it, let's say, with not being afraid during battle. Right, there's a famous Rambam-Ramban debate. So you're, you're right, I didn't think of that, but that is a good point. Bruce. For those people Fundamental difference, I hope, between going to the Talmud Chacham or the Mechubal today 
Okay, so let's get to Rafersh and then we'll, we'll, we'll answer your question. Okay? It might depend on whether you go with Ramban or Rafersh. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah, please. The Lubavitcher Rebbe? Okay, I, I'm going to suggest that that's a deviation from the main topic, if that's okay. So we're not going to, we, we are not going to address that one. Okay. Not that it's not an interesting question, but, uh, like, there's certain things you can't just say, we'll deal with it for 30 seconds. Like, if someone raised their head and said, like, what, why is there evil in the world? Like, I, I would probably not say, okay, we'll deal with it quickly and get back to, uh, yeah, I think that's a, a different question. Okay. So let us now, okay, let us go to, oh, I'm sorry, please. Okay, very good. Okay, very good. You're anticipating Rav Hirsch very nicely. Okay? Okay, let us go to Rav Hirsch now. We'll go a little bit out of order to Rav Hirsch and then the Nitziv. Now, I always wonder, like, you know, the argument for why we should teach things in Hebrew is that people should read things in the original, right? Then you get all the nuances and subtlety of the original author. So it's not such a convincing argument when it comes to Rav Hirsch, okay? Because, of course, the original is in German. But uh, I just like to do sources in Hebrew. And I actually find... Uh, Rabbi's translation more enjoyable than uh, the various English translations. So we are going to look at Rav Hirsch in Hebrew, even though uh, the argument of doing things in the original does not apply. Let's look at three passages in Rav Hirsch. Okay, here we go. So again, what is the job of the Navi as opposed to the Kosem? First piece. Rak Hashem sholim davar You know what? If we wanted to know our future, who would we ask? We would indeed ask Hashem. But, Ilu Hatamim kolikar. Would it be true that the Tamim needs to know the future? Now, clearly, where, which directions are first going in? Actually, the Tamim, like Rashi, the Tamim is someone who does not need to know the future, right? It's not about the Navi is another way of accessing this privileged information. It's that there's no need to access that information. Okay, let's keep going. We'd ask God for this information. Would it not be so? What is the Rafersh arguing? Really amazing. You know why we don't need to access this information? Because we have the guidebook we need already. Why do we have the guidebook we need already? Because we've got this wonderful work of Torah and mitzvot. We know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to give tzedakah and engage in kibbutz aim and keep Shabbos. We've got the guidebook. That is all the information we need. Now again, one could still say, well, what, what do you mean that's all the information we need? I'm about to invest all my money and I don't know where to do it, so what about that kind of information? So let's keep going. Reverse is claiming we do not need to know any special information. We have all the information we need. Okay, why is that? Because you have what to focus on. You can focus on your religious and moral responsibilities. You've got a good job. What about success? Because as long as you fulfill your obligations, you're an upstanding religious human being. You already achieve the goal. I mean, some of the question here about whether you need this information is what's the goal of life, right? If the goal of life is to be a good person, to have a good connection with God, right? So at that point, you have all the information you need. Okay, we do not need any greater information than that. And Rafer says it even more powerfully in the next piece. He says, why, why do other people want this kind of information? So he says, and I must go to the end of the first line of the second piece, of They lack the sense of inner security, this thing to rely upon. There it is. Because what's their gauge? Gauge is about, their gauge, their barometer is success. Am I wealthy? Do I have honor? Do I win battles? Right, if that's your definition of the meaning of life, that's success. So indeed, Torah and mitzvot does not provide you with the information that you need. Then you need to access some kind of other information, and you're in trouble. But what if you think the goal of life is not about material success, right? Life goes on whether or not you have a great year of crops. So at that point, one can easily argue, I have all the information I need in the Torah. There is no need to be choker achar tidot, because that is irrelevant. Which, which stock is going to take off is not really relevant to the purpose and meaning of my life. Yeah. Hey, excellent question. So we're going to see, we're going to see that Rav Hirsch is going to take the extreme opposite approach of Ramban, and we're going to see if there's a way to tone it down a little bit, which you're going to get really in the Nitzif. Meaning, is it really true that knowledge, again, I'm, perhaps we're being a little bit unfair the way we're presenting it now, because we're presenting that knowledge of the future is always this kind of more shallow 
approach to success. It goes together with honor and wealth and the like. But you wouldn't know, what if I want to know about the future something that is not so shallow, something that it does reflect kind of a moral and religious concern? That's a good question. Hold off on that for now. Yeah, please. Okay, can I, can I make a request, actually? We are going to, all questions about contemporary miracle workers, we could ask them at, what time is it now? How about at 3.30, okay? We'll, we'll leave uh, contemporary miracle workers out uh, out of it till then. Okay, we'll focus on Tanakh for now and uh, get to them later. Yeah, Javi. Mm-hmm. And I thought that because everybody inquires about the future in a whole bunch of different ways that are definitely legitimate. Such as? Such as uh, going outside and seeing what the weather looks like it's going to be today. Or yeah, but you're not, you're not trying to access some kind of esoteric information. But that's a different question. That's a, that's a question of what tools you use to predict the future and which tools are appropriate. And the sources we're looking at seem to, to deal with the question, at least on the face of it, uh, just uh, actually, let, let me actually uh, disagree with your premise. If I go out and see whether it's cloudy, that's not about the future; that's about the present. No, it's about whether it's going to rain in an hour. Yeah, but I'm gauging. I'm looking at a present as uh, meteorological reality. I'm not trying to get beyond that to something else. I, I would deny that's even trying to know the future. Okay, look, let's say this as follows. No one's claiming you can't make decisions based on what you think is going to happen. But I guess one might say going to the Monain or the Menachesh is kind of, uh, for lack of a term, kind of a, a desperation, right, where it's crucial that one has to have this information. Right, here, maybe I'll say this. The means, the need to expand means of doing so would reflect a greater urgency, a greater desperation. Maybe I'll say it that way. And if you do it just in uh, the natural way, so you, it's not so urgent for you. It's not this desperate attempt to use any means possible to find out what's going to happen. Maybe I'll say it that way. Okay, it's a good question. Yeah. Correct. The truth is, it's an important debate. I'm not sure it's really crucial here because we're talking not only about whether they're right or not, but the impulse, right? The impulse to need to find out about the future. So that impulse is something worth analyzing above and beyond the question of whether they're accurate. I admit the accuracy question is certainly relevant. Yeah, Avi. So on one level, first of all, we're going to first do with the fact that we are allowed to go approach the Navi. We're getting there in a second. We're getting there in a second. So yeah. the Torah itself speaks to us in terms of financial success and when we keep the mitzvot and the crops will come. How can the first say that those, those aren't really aren't... Okay, so it would be interesting to see how it first deals with uh, the question of motivation for divine service and those kind of promises, but I'm going to leave that aside for now if you don't mind. I'm going to deal with your first question. Okay, yeah, please. Okay, except that, well, I don't sure that fools my rule we can't ask that question until 3.30 or not, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'll just say not all of Kabbalah. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll I'll deal with it now. Right now, not all of Kabbalah is about you know getting red strings to protect yourself and knowing where to invest your money. Okay, for example, there's a classic split between what I call theoretical Kabbalah and practical Kabbalah. Theoretical Kabbalah has nothing to do with easy tricks to success, right? It has to do with things like it's basically another form of philosophy in a sense. Like let's say I'm trying to figure out how God made the world, so I could have different images for how God made the world. I could use the imagery of a a uh, potter at the wheel fashioning materials into the world. I could use the imagery of the sun sending out rays, and the rays somehow emerge from the sun. Now, famously in Kabbalah, they use a view of emanation. You think of creation as like the rays of the sun. That is not about where to invest your money, right? That is an approach to understanding a theological issue. So the question about Kabbalah, I think, would be limited to a very particular kind of Kabbalah. Certainly not Kabbalah writ large. Okay? Bruce, this better not be a question about current magical practices. Okay. Okay. Just sort of a scientific analysis of what perhaps in those days they didn't have access to, but it was their version of scientific analysis. But today we have scientific analysis. Okay, it's similar to the good question I was asked before. Hold off on that for a minute. Okay, let's go back to what Avi said before. Let's think for a second, though. Okay, let's stop focusing on narrowly and think broadly about Tanakh. Okay, how is our, let's think about what a Navi does, what Navim do in Tanakh. Okay, what's the classic prophetic speech? 
right? Is it do we is the classic prophetic speech? Oh, I'm trying to figure out where to invest my money. So I go to the Navi, and the Navi says, you know, invest in lumber and not in uh, in uh, metal, right? That is not the norm. Okay, we'll discuss exceptions shortly. What's the norm? Yeah, the Navi tells us, you know, you're persecuting the widows and orphans, and you're not keeping Shemitah, and the like. Not only that, one might suggest that very often, it's not that people go to the Navi, but rather, the Navi comes to us. In fact, you might, give me two more seconds, you might not want him to say anything. You're not eagerly anticipating the prophetic voice. You would be quite happy if he had stayed home, or she had stayed home for that matter, right? But they're there, and they have something to tell you. Sir, Rav Hirsch says something brilliant. Let's go back to the opening psukim. This is really a great inference. Okay, what happened in Pasuk Tetvav? The Pasuk that tells us about the Navi. What are the last two words? A love, Tishma'un. Says Rav Hirsch, just beautiful. The psukim could have easily said, A love, Tish'alun. A love Tish'alun would mean, oh, there's a Navi there. Go ask him your questions. Don't ask the Monain. They'll get it wrong. They're not coming from God. Go to the Navi. A love Tish'alun. But the Psukim understand very well that's not this whole phenomena. That is not this endeavor. The Navi's going to come to you and he's not going to give you the route to personal success. He's going to come to you and challenge you to be a much better religious person. Right? A love Tish'alun. When he comes to you, you have to listen to him. We have now seen, I think, the sharpest contrast here between the Navi and the Monain and between Rav Hirsch and the Ramban. Where for the Ramban and the Barbanel, you are being choker achar atidot. And it's just that the Navi is a better route for that than the Monain. Rav Hirsch has made it very clear, this is a qualitatively different job description. That's the contrast. And it fits in with Rashi's interpretation of Tamim. Be a Tamim. How is someone a Tamim? Don't be tachor achar atidot. And then go to the Navi. Actually, the Navi comes to you. Realize that's what it's about. The information you need is how to keep Torah and mitzvot in a more profound fashion. We should not even think of the Navi and the Monain as in the same category whatsoever. Yeah. Ah, uh, very good. Okay, excellent. Excellent. Okay, so now, the question is, I, I am very drawn to Rav Hirsch. Okay, I think many of us find it very appealing. The question, does it work across the board? Right? Is it really true that we have such a strong contrast between Navi and the Monain. So one way to check that is, well, what are the examples in Tanakh where individuals, or as two people already suggested, okay, or as communities, right, try to get information about the future or kind of secretive information. So let's talk about two possible test cases. So one is correct. We do have Shaul and Benar going to Shmuel to find out where the missing donkeys are. This is not some grand religious quest or how to be a finer human being, right? It's just how to reclaim the family donkeys. Maybe that's an argument against Rav Hirsch. What else might you quote? By the way, individuals, it's hard to come up with too many other examples. What about on a communal level? Communal level, you're trying to find out what's going to happen? Okay, what about before war? Right, there's several examples in Tanakh where there is consultation with the Urim Batumim to find out if they'll succeed in wartime or not. So this would seem to work a little bit against like, this neat split that Rav Hirsch wanted to draw, right? Maybe that would be an argument in favor of Ramban. Okay, so let's see if we can come up with perhaps a middle position. I'd be curious, I don't know, any place where Rav Hirsch addresses this. It would be interesting to know if he'd have an approach to the Shmuel example or the going to war example, but I'm not aware of any place. He just makes this very sharp, very sharp distinction. But I should say, you know, since I have time for a tangent, I'll just do one other thing about Rav Hirsch. Okay, with Moloch, there's a very unusual halacha. Very unusual halacha that many people have uh, critiqued. It says, if you give Mizaro to Moloch. And you know what Chazal derived from that? That the Mizaro, the Mem indicates, some and not all. Meaning that somehow the crime of Moloch is only when you offer some of your children and not... All of your children. Now, this seems as counterintuitive as anything, right? Meaning, if you give up some of your children, then you are a Moloch violator. If you give up all of your children, oh, that's okay, right? Then you are not a Moloch violator. So, clearly, it's not okay. Like, maybe we'll charge you under Lotirzach and not under, under Moloch. But why would that be so? Yeah. Wow. 
Okay, it sounds like a, it's like a minchas chinuch type question. We have like a chronish questions on the, the details of Moloch. That's a good question. Okay, but in any case, so why would that be so? So just before I get to Rav Hirsch, so some of Hirsch simply say, look, the pagan practice was X, it wasn't Y. Since that historically was the pagan practice to give up some of your children, so that's classified under Moloch, where if you give up all of your children, it's not classified under Moloch, find some other problematic category to classify it under. Rav Hirsch says something amazing, which I think is a related point. What's Moloch about? It's about trying to appease the fates, trying to appease God to get success. Now, how, when do I do that? When I, when, excuse me, when does a person do that? When a person gives up some of their children so that the others will prosper and succeed. Rav Hirsch claims someone who gives up all of his or her children is not thinking in those terms. They might be, have other, some other kind of problematic motivation, some other kind of corruption, but it's not about manipulating the cosmic forces in order to achieve success. And that's how Rav Hirsch identifies Moloch. I think it's a little bit powerful we've seen Rav Hirsch. Rav Hirsch is apparently very sensitive to the fact that we don't want to go through life saying, what's life about? It's not about making the right moral and religious choices. It's, around, it's all about just knowing how to set things up so that I succeed in life. When I go to the Monain, that's what it's all about. Right? As opposed to a Navi who's telling me how to be a better person. When I engage in Moloch, that's even... By the way, according to Rav Hirsch, it fits in nicely that... Mavir ben Obeish appears on this list together with Ov, Yidoni, Monein, Menachesh, Koseim, etc. It's all about success. And here, I hope no one's insulted by this. Indeed, I do not think Rav Hirsch would be a fan of going to various mystical practices today in order to improve your family budget. I believe he would say, no, no, you got it all wrong. Like, religious authorities are about figuring out how to be a better Jew, not about how to achieve monetary success. I believe he would be against it. I'm not saying there aren't other opinions out there, for those of you who identify with that. But uh, yes, Rav Hirsch would be against it. Okay, but let's go back to the question that was raised. What about counterexamples in Tanakh? So it's interesting that the Nitziv, Rav Naftali Tzvi Uder Berlin, the Rosh Shiva Volazhin, he comes up with a middle position. Okay, as we know, you know, Rosh Yeshiva are mostly known as those that give the big Gemara here. And indeed... The Nitzvah was certainly a world-class Talmud Chacham and gave a Gemara share. But in Volazhin, if I recall correctly, on a daily basis, he would teach Kumash for an hour. Okay, and those Shurim ended up becoming the Hamek Davar, which is really a, a major contribution. In fact, I, I said this once and someone in Shul got upset with me, but I'm going to say it anyway. Okay, I would even argue that Hamek Davar is a bigger contribution than, let's say, his Perush Shas, the Meromei Sadeh. Not that it's not a good Perush, but the Hamek Davar is really a tremendous contribution to, to Kumash study. So let's see what the Nitzvah says here. Okay, we're on the second page in the Hamek Davar. Now, he starts out, he sets up the question explicitly. What does Tamim mean? Now, again, here we're going to say Tom like Rashi says it. Not wholehearted, but innocent. Simple. Not You don't need to know. There it is. That's exactly the question. How does Rashi's approach go together with going to the Navi? If we're a Tamim, if there's no need to be Choker, Acharatidot, so why does the next Pasuk tell me that I go to the prophet. So he's going to have a slightly different approach than Rav Hirsch. Two of you said this, right? Don and Cookie said this. Very good. When it comes to private matters, indeed, what's this religious ideal? Maybe even a religious directive? When it comes to private matters, you do not need to go to a Navi. You do not need to go to the Monain. That is not the goal. And this is really your point also about what kind of needs are worthy. going to war. There isn't clear counsel. Right? You're not sure whether you're going to win. You're not sure whether you should go on the offensive or not. This is quite a fascinating nitziv. The nitziv is kind of trying to balance various uh, needs here. On the one hand, he identifies with this idea we don't really need to know the future. There's a, an ideal about being a tamim. So when it comes to your private matters, don't go. However, wouldn't we want, like you said, what about a noble search for information? You want to know if Am Yisrael is going to be victorious in battle. And that's going to impact on how many people die. Isn't that an important point of information? That if you could access it, it would be worth it. So the Nitziv in one stroke solves all the questions about consulting with Umbetumim or consulting with a Navi when it comes to battle. For the Nitziv, that would be an appropriate chakira acharatidot. That's his split. There's an appropriate chokera achidot and 
an inappropriate one. Again, I, I wish Rav Hirsch had addressed the question of battle. It would be interesting. Rav Hirsch seems to take a more extreme position. How would he deal with all the cases when they try to figure out if they should go to war is quite fascinating. Now, the Nitziv uh, knew his Tanakh, so he does realize that while his theory is great, there is one counterexample, of course, one could ask him about, which is, of course, again, Shaul and the donkeys. So he knew that, so let's keep reading. But I should say, you know, the fact that one exceptional case doesn't fit your theory, it's not really a reason to give up a theory in life. Okay, if we gave up a theory every time we had one thing that doesn't fit, we'd, we'd all be in big trouble. The theoreticians of the world would, uh, would go out of business. Okay, so let's see what, so again, I, I think it's true, let's, I'm curious if anyone has another example. It is hard to think of another example, because, I mean, I can't think of one offhand, where someone at Tanakh goes to Navi for kind of like success in that kind of way, like a business matter. Right, is that the purpose of, of going to Navi? Ah, you know what, just for you, I'll, I'll quote a, a Lubavitch example. Okay, here we go. There's a very interesting letter. Okay, we can look this up also. If you look at the Divrei David, you can look this up too in the library. Okay, in the back of Tanya, there's a section called Igrot Kodesh, right, where letters Lubavitch Rebbe wrote to his Hasidim. So if you look at letter Chafbet, the 22nd letter there, there's an amazing letter. The base of Lubavitch Rebbe says to his Hasidim, why are you asking me questions in Yanei Gashmiot? Why are you asking me all these mundane questions? You could easily imagine what was happening. He's saying, uh, Rav Shner Zalman, where should I invest my money? I'm looking for you to give me the information. Rav Shner Zalman, the first Lubavitch Rebbe, says, well, where, where in the world did you get this practice from? Right? That's something that maybe, uh, he does say, maybe you'd ask a Navi. But that's not you do it. Like, you don't ask Chazal that. Right? Where's the sense that they're the source of information for economic or pragmatic or mundane matters? Not at all. That's not what you go to them for. You go to them for religious guidance. So stop asking me your mundane questions. Now, it's interesting because the critique, the Rebbe's critique of his Hasidim could kind of go two ways. You could say he's saying, I simply don't know, which I think is true. Therefore, like, it's foolish to ask me. You could also say, you know, it might be easier to ask the Rebbe your economic questions than to ask him your spiritual questions. Because the, the spiritual questions, you might actually get challenged. I'll give you one second. So, but in any case, but there you have... A similar idea, like religious authority figures, they're not there to help you get material success. That's not their role in life. And here, again, I hope no one is going to be insulted by this. Not surprisingly, if you open a contemporary Tanya put out by Lubavitch, it explains in a footnote why Becholzot, you can't ask the Rebbe your monetary questions. Okay, you could go to, I don't remember what the explanation is, but you could, uh, you could go take a look. Okay, but the first Lubavitch Rebbe did say this is not what it's all about. Yes, yeah, Susan. Okay, so look. Look, I, I guess you're right. Let, let, before I take more comments, maybe we, we should tone down Rav Hirsch a little bit. What I mean is as follows. Okay, the suggestion of Rav Hirsch is not that it is evil to want to have a little bit of money to support your family. Right? There's not like an attack on any kind of material needs. I think it really relates to your question before also. It is legitimate to want to make enough money to support your family. It's legitimate to want to have a nice dinner now and then. That is not illegitimate. I guess the question is what I would say before again. To what degree has that become the focus or a source of urgency or even a source of desperation? I think that's the way I would say it. If you view the Navi or as the source of that, or you go to the Monain for that, you're making that more like the centerpiece of existence. Let's go back to the Navi. If you think the Navi is the source of material success, then material success is what it's all about. If you make, if the Navi is the source of how to be a better religious Jew, then that's what life's about. So again, I think you're right. I think it's an important point. One should not push Rav Hirsch or the Nitziv too far till you come like this ascetic approach that, you know, really a person should never think about money whatsoever. It's not really reasonable and uh, not really accurate about Judaism. But again, I guess the question of how central is it, how much urgency is there, how much desperation is there. And then Rav Hirsch and the Nitziv would argue each in his own way that making the Navi into that would be a problematic way of thinking about Jewish existence. Okay, who else had a comment before? Yeah. Well, when somebody goes to someone and asks them the future, even if they know they're going to get an answer, but the point is it's a future that's set in stone, something that they have no influence over. 
And therefore, first, you have to stay away from that because you're not, what Hashem demands of you is how to act. What's going to happen at the end is not really a concern at all. You have to act no matter what comes your way. So act. If you're asking about, if you're asking about the future, you're taking away that from yourself and you're just subjecting yourself towards whatever's going to happen. Look, look, it's true you could bring in kind of the freedom, determinism, divine providence access to this. I think in Rav Hirsch's words, it's more about what, what success is about, what life's about. I think that's the focus. I think if you read the three passages we have, that's the focus. Life is not about material success. Life is about being a proper, moral, and religious human being. So I, to, again, I admit you could bring the other question, but I think that is not Rav Hirsch's emphasis here. Okay, yeah, please. Has any consideration been given to a personality assessment or if it's solely a cultural assessment? Of who? Of the person asking? Yeah, sure. I'm sorry? Okay, the question was, is there kind of a personality assessment or a cultural assessment of the Monet and the Navi? I'm not 100% sure I grasped the question. But, um, you know what, I, I'm going to leave it aside if that's okay. Okay? Uh, you know what, I'll say this. It's a great question and therefore I can't answer it. So that'll be my excuse. Okay, let's try that. Okay, so let's go back to, let's go back to the Nitziv. So the Nitziv said so far that for a communal war, since so much is at stake and it's a good cause... There you can be choker acharatidot. Let's keep reading now. Hey, look what he says after, after the ellipsis on the fourth line. If there's this kind of necessity, this communal necessity, as two of you said, you do have a source. You can try to access the information. Notice how he tries to portray it? On an individual circumstance, or an individual's issues, the Navi would normally not be addressed, except for our kind of case of happenstance. There are these rare cases where the Navi isn't addressed for our, a private issue. So the Nitziv, I mean, he's well aware of this counterexample. I'm not 100% sure he has addressed it that successfully. Right, again, I guess his approach is similar to mine. The fact that you have one counterexample shouldn't make me throw out the entire theory. I guess the obvious question still is, but you know, why are there those McCre examples where the Navi is a source of information about a private monetary matter? Okay, we're all good with that? Okay, not only that, I don't know one second, in some ways you can argue it's even worse. Because what would be an argument that it's not an, a totally unusual circumstance if you look at that story carefully? Why would be an argument to say it's not just a one-off? It's not just this rare occurrence that Shmuel knew where the Atonot are. Because what, what, what does the Nar say to Shaul? Yeah, let us go to the Ro'eh because that's a good place to find out this kind of information. Does that make it sound like it was somehow a more common practice? At least it was a known possibility. Oh, what do you do when you have lost donkeys? You go to throw eh. So that makes it seem like it's a more widespread phenomena and not just this one-time event that in a rare occurrence, Shmuel happened to know where the family donkeys were. Okay, did someone have a hand up before? Okay, so let us go with one last possibility. Okay, and then we'll try to bring things towards a conclusion here. We had the Rambana Barbanel approach, we had Rav Hirsch's approach, and we had the Nitziv. Let us go to a fourth possibility. So let's go to the last page. Last page, we will look at the Pesukim in Shmuel, and we'll see a potential, a potential fourth way to go. Okay, here we go. So, Shaul and the Nar are trying to figure out what to do. The, I always like one thing that happens there, because like classic, uh, the classic problem. What is the, Shaul's, what do they say to Shaul and his Nar? Well, don't stay too long, because then, instead of looking for the Atonot, we're gonna end up, it's like the classic parent-child, which always happens, right? right? You go out to look for your brother, and then you're looking for the one who's looking for the brother. Right? So that's exactly what happens right there. But what is what is it, what happens when they're actually uh, looking? Oh, don't worry, I have a gift to bring to the man of God. So now notice one thing. There's a terminology thing that might be interesting here. Who are they going to? Here again, we get back to sensitivity to language. Doesn't matter which term you're using. We have different terms for people of prophetic ability in Tanakh. We have Navi. We have Ro'eh. What would be a third term you'd throw in there? We have Chose. Right? Gara Chose. 
Now, if you think about it for a second, uh, one of those three does not belong. Okay, which two would you put together? Jose and Roe. Right, both Jose and Roe have to do uh, the vision. Exactly, being able to see something, being able to know something. Now, it's a little bit less clear where the word Navi comes from. Okay, exactly. But Navi, many Mepharshim think it's related to this Pasuk, Niv Sfatayim, right? Like the fruit of the lips, right? There's a Pasuk in Yeshayo about Niv Sfatayim, right? And the suggestion would be that's where the word Navi comes from. Now, here's a good example, again, where sensitivity to language really matters, right? If you say someone's a Ro'eh or a Jose, you're talking about their ability to envision something, to see something. If you say someone's a Navi from Niv Sfatayim, what are you saying? They are essentially about saying something. That is essentially what it means to be an Avi. With that background, let us go to the Malbim. The Malbim has a tremendous idea here. Let us go to the Malbim. Lifanim, says the Malbim, Kotev What is the author of Sefer Shmuel informing us? Baal nitpale. Don't be surprised. It's remarkable. According to the Malbim, the author of Sefer Shmuel thought we'd have this question and was trying to help us out here in the Pasuk. Don't be shocked. Echayasa... He says, what's going on here? That's not what a Navi's about. I mean, the author of Shmuel envisions you being bothered. You're going to Ro'eh to find out where the family donkeys are? That's why you go to Navi? So let's skip to the third line, after the brackets. We don't find that. No one comes to Yishayahu to find out where the family donkeys are. They don't come to Yirmiyo to find out where the family cows are. It doesn't happen. I guess cows don't really run away, but okay. So now, uh, Omer, I'll tell you why, says the, 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 the author. No, because there's a difference. There's been a development. There's a shift. What does the Navi do? A Navi is someone who tells you a message. Okay, that is the Navi. Akidva Hashem di Berbo. Not only a message, but which message? It is not about economics. It is not about pragmatic success. The Navi tells you you should keep Shabbos. You should stop being mean to the Yatom and the Almana. That's what the Navi tells you. You would never go to a Navi to find out where to invest your money. That is exactly the difference. Fascinating. Another split might be there are different roles in the course of Jewish history. That's precisely the difference. A Ro'eh and a Chose, perhaps, are those that do access privileged information. They can see into the future. They have this vision of what's going to happen. They have this vision of what's happened. And therefore, they can tell you we're missing Atonodar. But that is not a Navi at all. Right, now maybe it's interesting, interesting, uh, shara, very interesting, com- uh, compromise here. Then maybe what are we doing here? We talked about the Nitziv's compromise. What was the Nitziv's compromise? On a communal level, so much is at stake, you could access the information. On a personal level, don't. We have a different compromise. Maybe we have two different roles. But maybe we maintain the purity of the Navi's role by not mixing the roles. A Ro'eh you might go to, bah, for finding out where your Atonod are. So okay, maybe that's legitimate. You might go to Ro'eh. But there's another Jewish institution called a Navi. Navi is a pure institution. Okay? A Navi is only about how to be a better religious person. Right? Don't mix up conversation with a Navi about something mundane, about something pragmatic, about material success. That is not at all what Navi is. According to the Malbim, that is what's being said here in Pasuk Tet, Lefanim Israel. oh, what they call a Navi, they used to call a Ro'eh. That's the background explanation for why they're going to Shmuel. Okay, let me just give you one other example of this, and I'll try to sum up the whole conversation. Okay, there's a very interesting Gemara in Megillah. There's a Gemara in Megillah, I think on Dav Gimel, if I recall correctly, which talks about uh, Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and Daniel. And it says they saw a vision, and one was afraid, and the others were not. And it says that each one has an advantage. What's the advantage? The advantage of, I'm trying to remember which way it goes. Yeah, the advantage of Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi is that they're Nvi'im, and Daniel is not a Navi. Okay? I think it's Megillah Dav Gimel. They're Nvi'im, and Daniel is not a Navi. The advantage of Daniel is he saw the vision, and they didn't. Everyone got the Gemara? 
Now, from a certain perspective, that Gemara makes no sense. Where did Gemara just say, Chagai, Zechai, and Malachi have an advantage because they're Nevi'im and Daniel's not. But Daniel saw the vision, and they didn't. I think the average student would read that and say, but wait, isn't the meaning of a Navi precisely that you see the vision? So how could it be that they saw it, and yet, say, that Daniel saw it, and yet he's the one who is not a Navi? This comes up again, just as an interesting thing to look up. Okay, there's a famous other Gemara in Megillah on Daf Yudalid that says there are 48 male prophets and 7 female prophetesses. Okay, this is just, I have a minute here to sneak this in. Now, the Gemara does not list the 48, but it does list the 7. Okay, so if you're curious who the 7 are, it's quite fascinating because not all the Imahot make the list. But and that list, anyone who makes it? Actually, only, only Sarah. Only Sarah is not on the list and not the others. And then you have people like, you know, Esther, Hannah, Abigail, Hulda. But it's quite fascinating that why Sarah is chosen, not Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. But be that as it may, Rashi there, though, tries to list who the 48 male prophets are. So you have, what, like, the official list of Nevi'im. So you have the seven female prophetesses in the Gemara and Megillah Yudalid. And then Rashi there tries to enumerate the 48. And Rashi discusses, should I count Daniel or not among the 48? Now, based on that Gemara and Daf Gimel, it would seem that maybe, in fact, we should not count Daniel. So let's go back to our question, though. But Daniel sees the vision. Of course he's the prophet. But according to what the, we just saw in the Malbim, the answer is obvious. Maybe the essential job of a Navi is not to have grand visions, not to access great information about the future or about the end of days. The essential job of a Navi is to tell people how to be a better human being. And if that's true, the person who sees the vision does not, in and of itself, that does not qualify that person as Navi. Certainly, Daniel was a great Jew, but all the grand visions of Sefer Daniel do not turn him into a Navi. And indeed, again, I'm certainly not an expert in Sefer Daniel. But if we think about Sefer Daniel, what do we think about? We think about obscure messianic prophecies about the end of days. That's someone who is a ro'eh. That's someone who has a vision. But we do not hear the voice of Yishayo and Yirmiyo saying, Hello, Peros, L'Rev, Lachmecha, right, or uh, about Tzedek, Mishpat. That is not the voice we hear in Sefer Daniel. Therefore, at the end of the day, Daniel is not a Navi and has nothing to do with the vision. Okay, let's just sum what we've done. I'll take closing comments here. So we've tried to figure out what's going on in Dvar Mirchet. We have this contrast of don't engage in various pagan practices, rather be Tamim and go to the Navi. So there's this double contrast. Be Tamim, go to the Navi. What does be Tamim mean? So one shot was innocent. Don't try to find out the future. That's Rashi. That's a great contrast. The Monain, you're trying to find out the future. The Tamim is not. But what about the Navi? Okay, leave that aside. Then we saw the Ramban and the Chizkuni. And others said, Tamim is not about innocence. Tamim is about being just wholehearted with God. Go to God for the future. The Ramban was even explicit about it's a natural desire to want to know the future. It's not a toiva. It's usher in a certain context, but there's nothing abominable about it. So now the Ramban says, you do that with the Navi. So I would say the Ramban of Barbanel School, it's a quantitative difference. Or to say it differently, the Navi does have the same job description as the Kosem and the Monain. It's just the Jew is meant to go to the Navi and not to the Monain. Have we returned to Rashi and said, but what about Tamim? What about not being Choker Acharatidot? So we saw three approaches here. The most extreme approach of Rav Hirsch, a Navi is not at all about knowing the future. We know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to do Torah and Mitzvot. A Navi comes to you to charge you with the world of Torah and Mitzvot. Not a love tishalun, a love tishmun. When he, you don't want to hear him. You don't want to hear her. But they come to you, listen to them about their religious message. Now, there are counterexamples. I don't know exactly how Rav Hirsch would deal with it. We had two compromises. The Nitziv's compromise. Oh, when it comes to communal needs, pikuach nefesh, then it's a justified pursuit of privileged information about the future. That's why they're always asking the Urm Vitumim about war. Ah, but your personal needs, that's not really so significant. And therefore, don't go. Although, as was pointed out, it doesn't mean like you shouldn't want to support your family. But not that kind of desperation, not that kind of urgency. That's not the meaning of life. That would be the Nitziv. The Nitziv, of course, did have the counterexample, which he was well aware of, of Shmuel, where he says, B'mikreh. I admit, I don't really have a great explanation for that, but as I said, I would not throw out the theory to one counterexample. So we have the Nitziv compromise. Find the Malbum has a different compromise. Right, the Malbum's compromise is, that's precisely what's being said in Sefer Shmuel, but the difference between the Navi and the Ro'eh. And it fits in beautifully in the wording. A Ro'eh, a Choseh, is someone with a vision. They could access the information. They could see how the stock market is going to play out. A Navi is not looking like that. He's not looking at that at all. 
He's ta- he or she is talking to you. That's what Navi is doing. Navi Sfatayim. Right? Nib Sfatayim. Right? The Navi comes with a message and your job is to listen to it. And as Jewish history progresses, I will say this, I guess my bias here is clear, it does seem like the Navi is a more powerful and more ubiquitous figure than the Ro'eh or the Jose. So even if we come up with some kind of compromised position, maybe the joint endeavors of Rav Hirsch and the Nitziv and the Malbim should tell us that, again, we'd all like to support our family, and there's nothing evil about that whatsoever. It is quite legitimate and positive. At the same time, right, the meaning of life is about being a good person, and therefore that's what we want from the Navi. We want a love tishmun, not a love tishalun. Okay, anybody with a closing comment in the last minute? Yeah, please. Uh, okay, okay. Although we, it's not the same as being called Ha Jose, but okay. All right, if anyone has another question, you can approach me afterward. All right, enjoy the rest of your learning here.